Good morning or good afternoon or good evening to you, uh, re you know, re regarding where you are. Uh, we have a huge number of participants today from all over the world. So I would like to welcome you all to our webinar today. I'm Nicolas Bornois, president of CapitalLink, and I'm the organizer of today's uh, webinar. Today's webinar is on a topic that is particularly interesting and important and timely. The topic today is uh, the IMO presentation on the new carbon emission reduction measures for the world fleet. Uh, as you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, these new measures coming out, actually amendments, uh, and uh, we are uh, very happy to have with us today Royal Henders. Royal is the acting head of air pollution and energy efficiency at the Marine Environment uh, Division at the IMO. So he is the man, uh, the expert who can share with us directly from the source what the IMO has come up with. And then we are going to have uh, a Q&A. Uh, I have a number of questions to ask him. And of course, we welcome the uh, questions coming from our participants. Again, I'm delighted that um, we have the opportunity to host this event today. Uh, it's very timely, very interesting. And Roel, uh, thank you for joining us. The floor is yours. Um, so let's go ahead with your uh, presentation. Thank you very much for that introduction, uh, Nicolas, and good morning, uh, US, and, and good afternoon, uh, Europe, and, and probably late at night, good evening to, to other parts of the world. Um, I'm going to share my screen right now um, to put up the presentation that I prepared. I hope you can see it. Um, so, as Nicholas mentioned in his introduction, um, this presentation will focus on the outcomes uh, of MEPC 75, the meeting that uh, basically finished two weeks ago, and particularly the outcome of that session uh, on greenhouse gas reduction measures and energy efficiency. But before starting with the, the outcomes of MEPC in, in terms of um, IMO's efforts to put in place a, a global regulatory framework to reduce GHG emissions from shipping. Um, let me highlight the importance and, and of course the tremendous work that the organization IMO is doing together with member states, together with industry on raising the uh, awareness at the global level at the highest level of the UN system in relation to the well-being of seafarers around the world in the context of the ongoing pandemic. And, um, I cannot stress enough that, of course, decarbonization is a priority for the organization, for IMO, but the well-being and the nomination of uh, seafarers as key workers is of equal, if not of higher importance at this particular time. So in that context, we welcome a resolution that was adopted earlier this week by the UN, and we are committed to continue to raise awareness uh, among our member states, among um, basically other UN agencies about the importance and the well-being of seafarers. So with that, let me start by uh, actually giving a bit of a, a context on what IMO, what the Marine Environment Protection Committee of IMO, the MEPC, is working on. And 
what we're working on uh, right now, together with the member states, together with industry uh, and other organizations, is actually to transpose or to put in place legal requirements in MARPO Annex 6 that are transposing what we have adopted um, two years ago in 2018, namely the IMO initial greenhouse gas strategy. And that um, the agreement of that um, of that strategy back in 2018 was really a landmark achievement of the organization and was welcomed um, by many member states, by uh, other UN bodies, by industry uh, as a huge step forward in uh, reducing GHG emissions from, from shipping and setting or paving the way, setting out how IMO is planning to do that. Now, after the adoption of this strategy, um, as I said, we are working on uh, putting in place uh, requirements, amendments to MARPO Annex 6 that put in place the different levels of ambitions that are set out in this strategy. So the strategy, of course, is a, is a, a strategic document. And um, in that strategic documents, there are different levels of ambition, which are very important. And let me highlight three or basically four of those levels of ambitions uh, to set the scene and to provide you the context of what we're working on uh, these days. First of all, um, the requirement or the level of ambition focused on continuing to strengthen the energy efficiency design requirements for new built ships, the so-called EEDI. And MEPC 75 adopted amendments to MARPO Annex 6 that actually bring forward requirements in relation to the EDI, and I'll come back to that in a second. The second uh, level of ambition, and uh, my presentation will focus mostly on that level of ambition, is related to the year 2030, and in particular uh, to, uh, or focused on reducing carbon intensity or transport work uh, by at least 40% by 2030 compared to 2008. And 2008 is an important year because 2008 is the baseline year so uh, of the initial strategy and the year to uh, that basically the emission reductions are compared with. More ambitious targets for 2050 uh, or the more ambitious level of ambition for 2015 is the reduction of total GHG emissions by at least 50% by 2050 compared to 2008. And just to highlight, but I'll come back to that a couple of times in my presentation, the difference between the 2030 level of ambition, which focuses on carbon intensity or transport work, and the 2050 level of ambition, which focuses on total annual GHG emissions from the international shipping industry. So with these specific levels of ambition, IMO is working towards phasing out greenhouse gases from the international shipping uh, sector as soon as possible in this century. Now, as part of the context and uh, as part of the explanation or, the, or, or kind of um, background to what MEPC is working on, just to recall that the initial strategy contains a list of so-called candidate greenhouse gas measures. And those candidate measures um, actually are split up in three batches, the short-term measures, mid-term measures, and long-term measures. And the strategy contains a number of examples of those measures, and uh, we're currently working in particular on the short-term measures. And I will zoom in on, on three of those measures, uh, three of those short-term measures, 
and namely the improvement of the existing EDR requirements, the development of uh, a short-term GHG reduction measure aimed at reducing carbon intensity, so aimed at achieving the 2030 level of ambition, as well as the establishment of an international maritime research and development board. Now, what's important to keep in mind is the timeline for these different candidate measures. And we're, as I said, we're working currently on the short-term measures and in accordance with the strategy, the timeline for finalization and agreement of those measures is between 2018, the start or the adoption year of the strategy and 2023. So we're working perfectly within uh, the timeline set out in the strategy. Coming then to MEPC 75 uh, of two weeks ago, which was the first virtual session of the committee. Um, it was a intense session. It uh, was um, focused primarily on greenhouse gases. And we had an excellent, I would say, discussion on the different proposals on the table. Um, divergent views, of course, but uh, the committee managed to actually, despite the complicated circumstances caused by COVID, to agree on quite a number of uh, important elements. And those elements, uh, first of all, is the adoption of amendments to MARPOL Annex 6 on the early application of phase three of the EEDI. And I'm going to um, further elaborate on all of these outcomes of the committee later. We approved, the committee approved a package um, on the so-called goal-based short-term GHG reduction measures. And that package consists of both draft amendments to MARPO Annex 6, so legal requirements, as well as the terms of preference for a so-called comprehensive impact assessment on states of that draft measure. The committee also approved IMO's fourth uh, greenhouse gas study. We'll come back to that later. The study contains a lot of uh, updated information in terms of GHG emission inventories, but also carbon intensity and emission projections of international shipping. The committee had an initial consideration of the proposal for the IMRB, the industry proposal put forward, and uh, also finally the committee adopted a specific resolution on so-called voluntary national action plans to reduce GHG emissions from international shipping. And those national action plans are voluntary, but they're very important actually to ensure that at a national level, the shipping industry works together, for, in this, for instance, with the port industry on promoting decarbonization. And, and we know that real decarbonization of the industry requires a lot of infrastructure development, investments, particularly in ports. And that's why these national action plans, which also aimed at bringing different organizations, stakeholders at national level together are so important. Again, a bit of context. I, I, I suppose many of you are familiar with the legal framework, uh, IMO's global framework regulating air pollution and energy efficiency. But just to uh, have a, a quick freshing, a freshing up uh, of the requirements laid down in the so-called uh, Annex 6 of MARPOL. That annex regulates atmospheric pollution as well as energy efficiency of ships. And following the ratification of um, Albania in the past weeks, um, we are actually now at 99 ratifications by states of that particular annex of MARPOL. And together those 99 states represent about almost uh, the total world tonnage. So we can uh, easily say that uh, almost all of the ships operating worldwide are subject to the requirements in MARPOL Annex 6. 
And we're very much looking forward to that 100th ratification of the of the annex, and and who knows, we will have a, a a nice party, a virtual party, or, or a prize for the country that will ratify the annex as the 100th state. Um, Mark Annex Six contains binding requirements, uh, but with some differentiation in their applicability depending on the ship type and the ship size. And we'll come back to that later in relation to the short term, the new short term measure. Chapter three of Annex six regulates air pollution. The global software cap or IMO 2020, which entered into force on the 1st of January of this year, um, as well as uh, NOx emissions. So the, the different tiers for regulating NOx emissions are covered by chapter three. While chapter four regulates energy efficiency of ships. So the already existing requirements in chapter four um, consist, for instance, of the EDI, the SEM, uh, as well as the data collection system. And the amendments that have been adopted at MBC 75 that I will present in this presentation are um, mostly amendments to Chapter 4. Um, coming then to the first um, set of, of, or the first uh, agreement of the committee, namely the adoption of amendments to MARPO Annex 6. And uh, those amendments uh, are particularly focused on what we call the early application of phase three of the EDI um, for a selected uh, number of ship types. And the EDI requirements or the different phases have uh, applied to new build ships only, and particularly to new build ships in uh, a specific time period. Phase three uh, of the EDI requirements was supposed to enter into force on the on 1st of January 2025, but um, the amendments that have now been adopted uh, require actually those more stringent energy efficiency design requirements that were destined to take effect in 2025 already to be applied as of 2022. And then that way we um, we bring forward those requirements for certain ship types in order to kind of accelerate the energy efficiency design requirements for those uh, ships. The amendments um, on the EDI will enter into force on the 1st of April 2022, which is six months after the adoption by MEPC two weeks ago, and that is uh, in accordance with the requirements of MARP 6. Let me then come to the goal-based or the so-called goal-based short-term GHG reduction measure. And uh, the, let's say the, the, the amendments uh, of the, the, that jointly um, consist or that jointly form this goal-based short-term reduction measure is a rather, it's quite a complex set of amendments to MARPO Annex 6. And, and I'll go through it and I hope to, to make it as clear as possible. Um, but it was a, um, let's say, a complicated uh, legal framework or a complicated legal text to negotiate. But um, following the, the um, huge effort of member states of industry to work together on this package of amendments and to make sure that it could be approved by MEPC 75 this year in order to stick with the timelines uh, set out in the initial strategy, has been a great achievement. Um, the amendments have uh, been approved by MAPC 75 and in accordance with the normal uh, process for adaption, adoption of amendments to MARPO Annex 6, those amendments would now have to be adopted by the next session of the committee, which will take place in June next year. 
And if everything goes uh, well, which we of course uh, assume, they can enter into force in 2023, again, 16 months after their adoption. As I mentioned at the beginning of my presentation, what is important is that these amendments uh, have been approved as a package together with the terms of reference for a comprehensive impact assessment of possible impacts on states of the draft measure, so of the amendments. And that impact assessment is something that we will now um, commence. So we will start working on that together with uh, different stakeholders, together with a steering committee of member states. And the outcomes of that impact assessment will be presented to 70, MAPC 76 and be considered together with the adoption of amendments. And this requirement on the impact assessment is a requirement that follows from the initial strategy and that actually needs to be uh, fulfilled for all possible candidate measures um, that will be discussed in the future in, in, in order to implement the strategy. Now, I want to, to stress that the amendments uh, that were approved by MEPC are particularly aimed at achieving the 2030 level of ambition set out in the strategy. And uh, as I mentioned, that 2030 level of ambition focused specifically on reducing carbon intensity or transport work of ships, so their energy efficiency, their energy performance. So as such, the level of ambition and the measure, so the amendments are not designed to put a absolute reduction or a target on um, total GHG emission reduction of shipping. The initial strategy doesn't uh, set that goal out for 2030, but mostly for 2050. So it, uh, the amendments focus on reducing carbon intensity. And we'll, I'll come back to that later. What is important is that the short-term measure is a goal-based measure. Uh, it uh, consists of both a technical and an operational approach to achieve carbon intensity reduction, and it leaves flexibility to ship owners to achieve that. A bit of context again, uh, and before coming to the legal requirements and, and uh, setting out or making the link with what is in the strategy and using some data, recent data as approved and as presented in the fourth IMO greenhouse gas study. So I mentioned that the 20 level, the 2030 level of ambition is focused on carbon intensity reduction compared to the 2008 levels of uh, carbon intensity of the world fleet. And uh, the graph on the slide is uh, a graph from the fourth IMO greenhouse gas study. And you can actually see on that slide, for instance, the percentage changes between 2018 and 2008 vary between close to 32% um, using the EOI carbon intensity indicator to 22% using the AER carbon intensity indicator under the so-called vessel-based option. And that is slightly different um, than when using the voyage-based option for calculating the international emissions. Now, these percentages are important because uh, as I mentioned, the uh, measure that uh, was approved is actually designed to bridge the gap between uh, these figures, so the 2008 figures, and the improvement that have already been achieved since uh, 2008, and what is remaining, what still needs to be done until 2030. So coming then to the legal requirements of the, of the amendments, uh, as I mentioned, the requirements consist of both a technical and an operational 
and the goal and the functional requirements uh, that are now or that are needed to achieve that target are set out in the new amendments to Mark 1.6. It's important to, to keep in mind that these amendments apply to existing ships, so to all ships, um, depending on their type and on their ship size. So um, compared to the EEDI requirements that apply only to new builds, this measure is designed to capture the entire existing fleet. The goal-based approach leaves flexibility to ship owners and operators so they can choose on different compliance measures to achieve the uh, reduction percentages. And looking then at the technical requirements and the technical approach, um, which consists mostly, mostly of the so-called EEXI, and I'll come back to that in a second. And that EEXI, that technical approach, uh, will need to be combined with a mandatory reduction of operational emissions. And that's mandatory reduction will be um, expressed in a so-called uh, carbon intensity performance, which needs to be annually verified and which needs to reduce, needs to be reduced between uh, the entry into force of the amendments and 2030. The existing ship energy efficiency management plan or SEM, which already uh, is inscribed in chapter four of MARPO and Annex 6, will be enhanced in order to be used as, a, as an effective tool for um, this goal-based measures and uh, having a, a, a concrete management plan for ships to measure their performance and to set out how they're going to achieve the um, carbon intensity reduction. So looking at the EXI, so the EXI is uh, based or largely actually mirrors the EDI values, the reduction values of the EDI for the year 2022. And the year 2022, uh, as I mentioned before, following the adoption of the recent amendments actually means that for certain ship types, 2022 reference uh, reduction factors are those laid down in phase two. And for other ship types, the reduction factors laid down in phase three. The um, attained EEXI is uh, what a ship can, uh, based on its uh, energy performance and based on the technical uh, measures that it takes, can be uh, achieved, can be attained. And that attained EXI needs to be below the required EXI, which is the maximum value that can be, or that is actually the maximum value that is uh, applicable for individual ships. Now, the certification of the EXI is uh, a one-off certification. And uh, that needs to take place at the first annual intermediate or the renewal IBPP survey after uh, the entry into force of the amendments, which is, uh, if everything goes well, the 1st of January 2023. And that certification or the calculation of the attained AEXI and the comparison with the required EXI will be done based on an EXI technical file. Um, the most likely means to achieve these EXI reduction values is through so-called engine or shaft power limitation. But of course, other technical means are also uh, possible. And as the measure is a goal-based approach, it is up to the ship owners to decide how to uh, achieve these technical or the EXI attained EXI. And this is basically what the amendments look like, just a snapshot. And as you can see, it's very similar to the already existing um, requirements in MARPO Annex 6 on the EEDI. 
and the reduction factors, as I mentioned, are largely similar to those for the year 2022 under the different, uh, for the different ship types uh, in the EEDI. Coming then to the, to the operational approach, um, and the operational approach is um, actually slightly, or the, the scope of applicability of the operational approach is slightly different or different than the EXI. So whereas the EXI um, is applicable to ships of different um, dead weight tonnage, as you can see here uh, on the slide again for the EXI values, the operational approach is applicable only to ships above 5,000 uh, GT. Under the operational approach, uh, ships are required to achieve a operational energy efficiency, the so-called required CII, and that CII is uh, laid down, will be laid down, this is work that still needs to be done, uh, in accordance with a so-called carbon intensity indicator reduction factor. And that reduction factor is um, based on, on basically the gap in terms of carbon intensity that needs to be bridged between uh, the year 2023 and the year 2030. Um, that uh, carbon intensity or the operational energy efficiency of the ship uh, will be expressed by uh, a so-called carbon intensity indicator. Now, the text or the legal amendments, uh, the amendments to Marponics is that have been approved um, do not spell out what kind of a carbon intensity indicator needs to be used and um, a correspondence group that has been established by MAPC 75 will look into the carbon intensity indicators that, that need to be used. What is clear though is that um, the already existing IMO data collection system, so the system that um, applies again to ships over 5,000 GT and requires those ships to actually collect and report their total fuel consumption to IMO is the, the very likely or the most prominent um, means to uh, calculate the carbon intensity indicator. Based on the energy efficiency performance, uh, ships will be rated against specific reference lines uh, and those reference lines they set out uh, again, the curve between the 2023 levels and the 2030 levels that need to be achieved for different ship types and different sh ship sizes. Um, the carbon intensity, that annual performance uh, and the associated rating is then to be verified by the administration, which will issue um, a statement of compliance. And the statement of compliance already exists uh, for the, the data collection system requirements. So it's obvious that the two or the existing data collection will be um, largely linked to the statement of compliance for the ship's uh, carbon intensity performance. This is just to give you an, an indication of how that rating system uh, may look like or can be developed. As I, as I explained, this is work, uh, the work on the so-called reference lines for carbon intensity is ongoing. Uh, what the amendments did specify those that there will be five ratings for ships, uh, depending on their energy performance, energy efficiency performance. And the required CII is the median value of the so-called C rating. And what that required CII uh, will be, um, and what that required CII will be for the years in between the entry into force of the amendments in 2030 or until a review of the requirements is still to be defined. 
What the amendments did, uh, or what is already included in the draft amendments, though, is that ships, poorly rated ships, so ships rated D for three consecutive years or E uh, for one year, have to develop a so-called plan of corrective actions. And that plan of corrective actions then needs to be um, integrated, needs to be taken up, included in the SEMP. And as I mentioned before, the SEMP is um, the use of the SEMP will really be enhanced under these approved amendments as the tool to manage uh, energy efficiency by ships. Um, what is interesting uh, and quite innovative in the uh, draft amendments is as well that um, on the basis of the rating of, uh, of the, the rating system included in the draft amendments, administrations, port authorities, and other stakeholders are encouraged to provide incentive to the best performing ships, so the ships rated A and B. And of course, this is voluntary. This is, um, it's, it's encouraged, but it is an interesting building block, of course, for um, using the, the, the system of rating and the amendments um, in different contexts. So in, um, let's say, in summing up the, the short-term approach or the short-term measure and the combined technical and operational approach, um, the essence is really that the EXI values and the effectiveness of the EXI of the technical uh, requirements that will be certified at the beginning of the entry into force requirement will be um, monitored, will be um, followed up on a yearly basis through the reporting of the operational carbon intensity. And obviously, uh, in situations where the EXI is not e efficient to um, allow the ship to achieve its required carbon intensity indicator, the ship would have to um, implement additional operational measures. And again, as it's a goal-based measure, it's up to the ship owners to decide on what kind of operational measures, also depending how far the ship is away from its required carbon intensity. Um, Depending on those factors, the ship can decide on the operational measures it may wish to implement. What is important as well is that the system or the amendments have been designed in such a way that um, there's a certain number of years uh, that allows for verification of how the system or the carbon intensity indicators function in practice. At the same time, we also know that there are a lot of uh, developments ongoing in terms of new technologies. And in order to kind of capture all those ongoing developments, which are actually accelerating, I think, as we speak, uh, a review of the uh, entire measure of this goal-based measure is to be completed by the 1st of January 2026. And based on that review, additional, more stringent measures can be taken. The review can also look into the impacts of the measure on states and foresee necessary adjustments uh, based on that uh, review of the impacts on states. But what is important is that with the uh, approval of the draft amendments, uh, the organization IMO is perfectly in line with the implementation of the uh, 2030 or with the implementation of, of candidate measures that are aimed at achieving the 2030 level of ambition uh, set out in the initial strategy. So we're working truthfully uh, in line with what's set out in the strategy, meaning uh, achieving 40% carbon intensity reduction by 2030 compared to 2008. 
Let me then go um, briefly to uh, the other outcomes, the main outcomes of, of MEPC, and particularly the approval of the fourth IMO greenhouse gas study. And um, maybe I hope many of you have seen the study and, and have uh, looked into the figures. It contains a lot of uh, very relevant data which will guide our future discussions um, on candidate measures. And the study includes, uh, like previous IMO greenhouse gas studies, the so-called GHG emission inventories for the period 2012 to 2018 for the various uh, greenhouse gases, of course, CO2 being the prominent, the most prominent uh, greenhouse gas. Um, the study found that um, the year 2018, so the last year of this that was subject to, to um, the study or that was covered by the study, that the total amount of CO2 emissions or CO2 equivalent emissions from the global shipping industry, so both international and domestic shipping, is uh, 1,056 million tons. And that is actually an increase compared to 2012. So uh, on the basis of that increase, you can also see or the study found that the share of shipping in terms of global CO2 emissions has also slightly gone up compared to 2012 from 2.76% to 2.89%. And what is interesting though, is that the study did find uh, a clear decoupling of the CO2 emissions from international shipping compared to the increase of seaborne trade. So the, and the previous figures that I've shown in terms of carbon intensity indicate that of course that Whereas the CO2 emissions um, have gone up between the total CO2 emissions have gone up between 2012 and 2018, the carbon intensity uh, of the fleet has gone down significantly. If we look at the absolute uh, emissions, CO2 equivalent emissions from, uh, from international shipping, so the part that is covered by the initial strategy, uh, we can see that based on the voyage-based approach, uh, there is a reduction from uh, 2008 emissions from 794 million tons to 755 million tons. So compared to the baseline of the initial strategy, emissions are going down, but we're far away, of course, from uh, the 2050 level of emissions set out in the strategy, which is um, a 50% reduction of total GHG emissions. Another interesting element of the uh, IMO greenhouse gas study and, and which is uh, a novelty is actually the information it contains on carbon intensity calculations. And I've already shown you the carbon intensity of the entire fleet. Uh, this slide gives a bit more of a breakdown in terms of ship types. And of course, this breakdown will to a large extent together with the information contained in IMO's data collection system set out um, the additional efforts that need to be done by the different ship types in order to achieve the 2030 level of ambition. And you can see that depending on the carbon intensity indicator that's being used to calculate energy efficiency, there is quite a bit of um, a difference. Some, it's also obvious that some of these ship types have uh, made more progress in terms of carbon intensity reduction than others. So uh, that would logically mean that those ship types would have to do more in the um, period up to 2030. Um, another uh, finding of the greenhouse gas study is the fact that um, compared to 2008, carbon intensity has uh, reduced significantly. 
However, in the period since 2012, that uh, reduction has kind of slowed down a bit. And so it is key, of course, that uh, we continue or efforts are made uh, to further or to keep that reduction of carbon intensity uh, in order to achieve the 2030 level of ambition. In terms of emission projections, uh, the study found actually that under business as usual scenarios, so without any further amendments, the emissions uh, of international shipping are uh, expected to grow between 90%, so that's a slight reduction compared to 2008, up to 100, 130% of the 2008 emissions by 2050. And that projection is much lower than the projections uh, on in the third IMO greenhouse gas study, but again, um, if we remember that the level of ambition for 2050 set out in the strategy is to reduce uh, total emissions by 50%, an increase, of course, is um, not the right uh, path. Another main uh, discussion um, or a big topic that was covered by MPC 75 was the proposal that was submitted by a, a, a number of industry organizations on the establishment of a so-called International Maritime Research and Development Board, as well as an associated fund. And I mentioned at the beginning of my presentation uh, that developed or that research and development board is uh, included um, in, the, in the list of candidate measures and the industry proposal actually puts a lot of flesh on the bones of, of such a candidate measure. Um, I'm sure that many of you have seen uh, or have read the proposal in detail. It was, um, when, when it was issued, it was really um, broadly welcomed by, by media and actually it, it, it gathered a lot of media attention. Um, the proposal is based on a $2 fuel levy, mandatory levy. And on the basis of that levy over a period of uh, 10 years, a 5 billion, uh, 5 billion US dollar fund could be created that would look into financing R&D projects for the shipping industry in order to accelerate decarbonization and uh, including also a specific focus on developing states and assisting them to uh, be part of that transition. The MEPC 75 uh, had a very uh, interesting discussion on, on the proposal. Many uh, different elements of the proposal, legal elements, governance um, elements, financial elements of the proposal have been discussed in, in detail. And um, for the time being, nothing has been uh, decided on the, pro, pro, on the proposal and it's uh, expected that we continue that discussion at the next session of the committee in June. Um, so looking at our regulatory outlook, uh, and I'm coming to an end of the presentation here, but just to highlight what is uh, expected to be done in the period between uh, now and the next MEPC, next sessions of the committee, is of course, firstly, and most prominently, to finalize uh, what is needed um, in, in relation to the short-term goal-based measure and to ensure that the measure can be adopted at the next session of the committee. So a broad set of guidelines uh, need to be uh, developed. Uh, that and those guidelines will contain very important elements such as the carbon intensity calculation, um, how the plan of corrective actions would have to look like. And a correspondence group that was established by the committee two weeks ago has already started its work on uh, the development of those guidelines. That draft set of guidelines will then be discussed um, 
at the eighth intersessional working group of greenhouse gases, which will take place in, in May. And that group uh, has proved to be very um, useful uh, and actually uh, crucial in making progress on, on these amendments. And uh, we had sessions of the group earlier this year, and the amount of work that was done by the group was impressive and actually ensured that the committee could approve the set of amendments. As well, um, or what is important as well, is the establishment of the steering committee. And that steering committee, consisting of member states, will have the important task to oversee the development of the comprehensive impact assessment of the draft amendments. And again, that work needs to be done in a very relatively short period of time, uh, because the outcomes of the impact assessment need to be presented to MEPC 76. What is important as well is that we um, make progress or that we continue the consideration of uh, proposals that have been submitted already to IMO in relation to the so-called life cycle assessments or the um, let's say the intensity carbon intensity guidelines of different alternative fuels and it is an, a very important discussion uh, it's a discussion that focuses on what is the overall uh, carbon footprint of alternative fuels such as LNG methane but also other potential alternative fuels, and whether that, um, that carbon footprint will have to be assessed, for instance, from a so-called tank to propeller approach, or whether it would have to be seen in a much broader approach, meaning from, uh, from well to wake. So that discussion had been uh, put on hold because of the um, COVID and the, the reduced meeting time. But we actually foresee this to uh, be picked up again soon in uh, 2021. What is important as well, and, and what came out of the discussion uh, during MEPC two weeks ago, is that uh, many member states, uh, as well as uh, organizations, are very keen on initiating discussions as soon as possible on the so-called mid and long-term greenhouse gas reduction measures that are identified in the strategy. Equally, uh, a number of member states highlighted the importance to start discussing the revision of the strategy. As the name of the strategy already says, it's an initial strategy. Um, the strategy itself foresees that it should be foreseen um, or that it should be uh, revised by 2023. And member states are keen on starting that discussion. Another important element uh, that will come back at the next session of the committees on so-called working arrangements. Um, the, those of you that may have participated in the last MEPC sessions uh, probably noted that uh, greenhouse gas discussions are taking a lot of time um, and uh, there is some consideration needed on how to structure the work of IMO and of MEPC in that regard. And um, I know that there are probably questions about so-called market-based measures. So the market-based measures uh, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from shipping are identified in the strategy, in the initial strategy, as a possible mid-term uh, mid measure. We haven't seen any concrete proposals on that yet, but uh, we do anticipate, uh, based also on certain uh, industry initiatives, uh, that concrete proposals putting a, for instance, a, a price on carbon emissions will be submitted for consideration by IMO to a next session of the committee. And this is my last slide. Um, of course, IMO is the global regulator uh, for the global shipping industry. 
Um, and as you have seen in, in my previous slide in my presentation, we're working hard uh, to put in place a truly global regulatory framework aimed at reducing uh, GHG emissions from shipping. But in parallel, uh, we are really increasing also efforts uh, that are basically supporting countries, uh, the industry, in order to make that transition to uh, real GHG reduction. And we have um, set up a particular uh, new uh, initiative, which is called FinSmart. And under that uh, initiative, we have brought together private development banks um, in order to, to work closely together on developing strategic partnerships to uh, find and to, to put in place new uh, financial instruments that can support the industry as well as developing countries to uh, transition to uh, clean carbon-free shipping. We're also um, increasingly looking into uh, our role in uh, promoting R&D projects and we are working together with UNEP uh, as well as the government of Norway in order to organize a, a so-called uh, R&D forum next year, which will really be focused on what are the promising low carbon fuels of the future and how can IMO support their um, availability and take up. And finally, but definitely not the least important, and especially for IMO, this is of crucial importance as we are a UN organization that represents all of the member states around the world. Um, it is important that we ensure that in all of our discussions uh, on the transition to carbon neutral shipping, all of our member states are equally involved. And that uh, means that we are also stepping up our technical cooperation efforts in order to particularly assist, uh, assist developing countries, small island developing states, the least developing countries, in being part of this global transition of the industry. And we have uh, set up, we already had a number of major projects that assist countries. And these projects, the, the number of projects is continuously uh, expanding. So we're very happy with uh, those efforts as well. And uh, grateful to member states that support IMO in, in that uh, particular endeavor. So, and with that, um, I, I finished my presentation. And, um, I, again, I would like to thank you very much, uh, Nicholas uh, Capital Link, for giving us this opportunity to bring everyone up to speed uh, and to uh, put in a nutshell, to expand in a nutshell on, on a complex legal system that we will continue to work on in the next months and the next uh, sessions of MFC. So, thank you very much. Royal, uh, thank you very much for uh, a very insightful presentation. Uh, and now we are going in, uh, I think you can stop uh, sharing your screen now if you want. Yeah. Uh, so now we can go into the Q&A. And uh, two things to say. Number one, thank you. Great presentation, a lot of tremendous material, a lot of detail. Number two, judging from the attendance we have, you are a very popular man today. Uh, and number three, I hope that uh, our delegates, our attendees, have brought with them lunch or dinner, because judging on the avalanche of questions we have, I think we're going to be here for some time. And I okay. think uh, the uh, part of the value of this is the Q&A. So if you allow me, I would like to start with a few broad-based questions and then go into uh, more technical aspects of the presentation that you made. Uh, so starting on, on the broad level, 
you know, we have uh, the approval phase and then we have the adoption phase. So right now we have the first phase of the approval uh, of these uh, proposed amendments and they will come for final adoption uh, in June. So two things to ask you here. Number one, uh, what is the committee going to be working in the meantime between the two uh, sessions? And number two, based on practice, I have the expectation that based on past practice, we can have the expectation that what will be adopted in June will be basically what has been approved right now. Um, thanks, uh, Nicholas, for, for that question. Um, yes, the, the normal procedure for uh, amendments to uh, MARPOL, MARPOL NX6, uh, consist actually of a, of a two-step approach. So uh, the initial approval of the amendments, um, after which the amendments are circulated by the secretariat to, to the parties uh, of the convention. And then uh, those amendments can be adopted by the next uh, session of the committee. We know that, and I, I highlighted that uh, in my presentation, that uh, a lot of work still needs to be done. Uh, some of the details of the measure need to be laid out in uh, technical guidelines. Uh, a correspondence group has been established that, again, is a normal practice of, of IMO, that a specific correspondence group will work on the development of technical guidelines, and they have already started their work. And their work is, um, their workload is considerable. So they'll have to finalize uh, guidelines on the EXI, so the technical approach they'll have to finalize a series of guidelines on the operational approach, particularly on uh, developing those reference lines for the carbon intensity reduction for different ship types, uh, ship sizes. Uh, they'll have to develop guidelines on that rating system, which is so prominently part of the amendments, as well as on the corrective action plans and, and the SAM. So they're working on that in parallel. Um, and let me just say that um, interested organizations, member states can, of course, join the correspondence group to be part of that technical work. Um, in parallel, we'll have to uh, carry out the impact assessment, uh, so the assessment of uh, possible impacts of these amendments on, on countries. So we'll have to identify whether the measure may have an impact on certain trades, uh, on certain export markets of countries on the fleet of certain countries. And that work has um, or will start soon and will be overseen by a um, steering committee. So that is the work that needs to be done in, in what we call the intercessional period. Um, to come back to your second question, uh, we of course hope that uh, with that work, the amendments can be adopted largely in the, in the way that they have been approved. Um, Normally at the adoption phase of amendments, there shouldn't be major changes to the legal text. Uh, and um, certainly certain tweaks can be made, but um, we expect generally that the text is robust and solid uh, together with uh, the package, meaning the set of guidelines in the impact assessment. Thank you. So another thing that I, another question that I have, and I think this is on the mind of a lot of people in the industry, uh, in various conferences we have held, uh, we have been uh, hearing the same concern and comment from ship owners. The need for uniform global regulatory framework. 
And clearly the IMO is the global uh, regulatory organization. Uh, at the same time, we have the European Union with its own proposals. Uh, the industry seems to be concerned about the regionalization of uh, regulatory initiatives. So if I can ask you, what is your take on this and how can we reach the point of having a uniform global regulatory guideline? Yeah. Um, well, let me start by saying that the, the set of amendments that have been approved by MEPC uh, clearly shows that IMO is sticking to its commitment to put in place a global regulatory framework. Um, it's important to, to emphasize as well that those amendments are uh, in line with what we collectively agreed back in 2018, so not such a long time ago, in relation to uh, reducing carbon intensity of ships by 2030 by 40%. And so that level of uh, ambition for 2030 has now been translated, if you want, into binding requirements. And those binding requirements, once they enter into force, will apply to the global fleet. And of course, we, we are familiar with the initiatives in the EU. We know uh, equally that um, EU member states, which are also parties or member states to IMO, together with a number of other countries, of course, would like to accelerate the pace of, um, of, of the greenhouse gas reduction uh, discussions within IMO. Um, for the time being, what we're doing is working in line with the strategy that was adopted by uh, our membership in 2018. Uh, we're in line with the timeline set out in the strategy, and we will have a discussion sooner or later on revising that strategy. And that will be the moment to see uh, and to define how uh, IMO can potentially speed up its pace. And in, in, uh, in parallel, we uh, expect concrete measures, proposals for market-based measures, uh, such as uh, the, the measures that are currently being considered by the EU to also reach IMO. And then we will have a discussion on that together with our collective membership. I don't mean to put you on the spot. I, I will simply say from my side, I, I hope that there is some kind of a mechanism exactly to bring all these uh, initiatives together so as an operator, you don't end up having to observe different measures uh, of different, if you want, uh, intensity, because the IMO may have a certain set of regulations, the European Union may have another. Um, so I, I hope that there is a mechanism to eventually bring, converge everything. Anyway, mm -hmm. I don't want to put you on the spot because I, <laughs> I understand. So, uh, but in line with this, we have seen several other initiatives, uh, Poseidon principles, uh, right circulatory on ratings. Uh, the charters, uh, the charters now have their own uh, initiatives. So, very well meant initiatives, but again, a plurality of uh, of uh, guidelines. And if I'm an owner, I mean, this is a really a labyrinth of um, uh, guidelines and regulations to observe. So. How can we put everything together? Hmm. Well, uh, the short answer is that's exactly what we've been trying to do by uh, working on uh, developing this set of amendments. And 
the set of amendments um, are amendments to a to an instrument, uh, MARP Annex Six, which has been ratified by almost 100 states and covers almost the entire world fleet. So, in that way, it ensures that uh, initiatives, voluntary initiatives that exist in parts of the world, um, can actually be maybe replaced or can be uh, formed part or have guided actually those discussions in IMO. And um, I think some of the examples that you just mentioned are voluntary examples. Um, MARPO Annex 6 and the amendments, they will provide a binding uh, regulatory framework that covers the entire fleet. So that is, of course, the strength, I think, of these amendments. And what is what is new and what is innovative and what I think is promising for future discussions within IMO is that concepts that didn't exist at all in MARPO Annex 6, uh, such as carbon intensity calculations, uh, the rating system, uh, are now actually brought into a legal text. And those concepts can then be used um, by external stakeholders um, for additional initiatives. They can be used by charters, they can be used by financial institutions, banks, um, insurance companies, ports, to promote um, the uptake of, of the most efficient uh, ships. So I think, you know, we, we, we can be proud of, of what has been uh, agreed under very difficult circumstances uh, caused by COVID. And um, of course, we know that the system is uh, a first step and that more decarbonization, more discussions on decarbonization will be needed. But um, this is an important first step and, and that has brought incorporated important concepts into legal requirements. By the way, as I'm sure you know, uh, a, a large part of the industry has been advocating slow steaming as, uh, as a measure to achieve uh, carbon emission reductions. And I understand that uh, part of the industry would like that to be a mandatory uh, versus voluntary uh, you know, adoption. So how does slow steaming uh, fit into the current uh, measures that you have proposed? Yeah. Um, so the, the measure uh, consists of uh, operational and, and a technical approach. Um, with an overall goal, uh, and that goal is the 40% 40 40 uh, carbon intensity reduction. Um, throughout the discussions, I think it was or it became clear that many member states uh, favored um, a flexible approach, allowing um, individual ships operators to select the measure that is most um, well, promising or most uh, rewarding or easiest, cheapest to implement for them. And slow steaming can be one of those measures. Um, there is no such requirement that slow steaming will have to be part of the uh, mix of measures. It can be. It depends also how far a certain ship is away from its required carbon intensity indicator and whether it needs to do a lot in terms of operational uh, improvement or not. Um, we've seen various documents um, so being submitted to, to IMO, uh, highlighting both the advantages as well as the disadvantages of slow steaming. 
And so we'll, um, it will be up to the um, individual ship and operator to decide on whether it wishes to implement slow steaming as part of its measure uh, package of, of measures. So that's the last question I will ask you on a broad base uh, on the concept, and then we'll go into some more detailed questions on, on the methods themselves. Right. Uh, I have read in the papers that you know your recent uh, proposals have uh, been met with criticism from a number of organizations. What has been the criticism, and mm -hmm. why? And you can yeah. share with us your. Yeah. Um, so I think the, the criticism is, is kind of uh, twofold. Um, one large or one part of the criticism relates to the, let's say, the overall greenhouse gas reduction of the global fleet. Uh, the other part of the criticism relates mostly to kind of enforcement and, and penalties of, of the measure. Um, now to to just elaborate on that first point of criticism, um, as I mentioned uh, a couple of times in the presentation and particularly referring back to what was agreed in 2018 in the initial IMO strategy. And again, that strategy was adopted collectively by uh, the IMO membership. And what that uh, strategy sets out for 2030 is achieving a 40% carbon intensity reduction. And uh, I tried to explain in my presentation that that carbon intensity reduction is not similar to reducing or does not equal absolute emission, greenhouse gas emission reduction of the global fleet. Compare it with um, having a very efficient car, energy efficiency car, but driving many miles, many kilometers on an annual basis. You still have quite a big carbon footprint if you travel uh, a lot and if you cover a lot of distance throughout a year compared to maybe uh, a poorly or an inefficient car that sits in your garage most of the year. And this is probably where some of the criticism come from. So where is we are aiming to reduce the carbon intensity of, of uh, the global fleet if the total number of ships operating around the world is uh, going up or if uh, those ships are starting to operate uh, more distance, it may imply that the total greenhouse gas reduction is not uh, that big. And what you mentioned before, and, and what is obvious, of course, is that there are many member states, many industry organizations, NGOs would like us to accelerate the pace of reducing the absolute GHG emissions. And um, as I said, we'll, we'll come to that. And that is not, um, it's included in the strategy. It's included or very likely to be part of uh, the discussions on the revision of our strategy. Um, but for the time being, we're working in accordance with what was the mandate set out in the initial strategy, which is a 40% carbon intensity reduction by 2030 compared to 2008. So that's the first point of criticism. The second one relates more to the measure itself. And I think I saw some, some questions as well in the Q&A on, on penalties. Um, there are no penalties foreseen in the legal framework for the, for the moment. Um, 
provided the ship has its EXI certification, um, the requirement or kind of the backstopping is the so-called plan of corrective actions. And that plan of corrective actions need to be uh, adopted and implemented by the ship in order to uh, move away from a D or an E rating. Um, however, for the time being, there was no uh, agreement on having additional penalties or um, consequences for ships that will uh, continue to operate uh, or that will be uh, rated as D and E uh, despite that plan of corrective actions. And um, that may change. Uh, as I mentioned, we, we do foresee a review of the measure uh, in to be completed by 2026. And depending on the experience on uh, how these requirements will function in practice, uh, those penalties and legal implications may change. Um, but I do think that what is important to highlight here is that, again, we have negotiated a measure that applies to the entire fleet, to the global fleet. And we know that certain trade routes, certain remote areas are served by ships which are not probably the most uh, efficient ones. Um, at this point in time, the agreement of the committee of IMO was to not penalize those ships more uh, than uh, the obligation to put in place a, a plan of corrective actions. And this ensured that there was an agreement, this ensured that there was progress, um, but maybe uh, the legal implications will be uh, strengthened uh, throughout the review process uh, in uh, 2025. So staying on that topic, which I think is a critical topic, we have seen a lot of questions actually coming in on this particular topic. Yeah. Uh, so I'm an owner of a ship and I have to have the mandatory ship energy efficiency management plan. So I'm establishing it myself as an owner. It's a self-imposed plan. Mm -hmm. uh, so number one, who is monitoring compliance with that plan? And number two, uh, I think you answered that uh, if I fail to um, achieve what my plan mm -hmm. uh, that I put together mandates, and if, I had, uh, and if at the same time I'm in rated number D or E, there's no actual punitive uh, measure coming from a regulatory standpoint. You expect the market to take corrective action by excluding those ships uh, or restricting the trading. So question is, who is gonna monitor compliance? And is there any other way to beyond the market correctiveness to achieve um, ultimate compliance with your the regulation? Um, so the, the SAM, the, the plan, uh, is to be verified by the administration. So there is a role for the administration. It's not, it's not just a ship operating completely uh, by itself without having any oversight. Sorry, when you said in addition, first um, one you mean you said the administration. Who is sorry, it? you said it has to be yeah. the the the, the SAMP needs to be so the plan needs to be verified by the administration. So there's a verification like like is uh, similar to other requirements already existing in Marp One Six. So the administration of the flag of the ship will verify the okay. plan. Okay. In addition. 
In, in, in addition, um, or well, let me first elaborate by saying that what exactly needs to be covered in the SAMP and, and which will then become subject of the verification is um, being discussed now in the context of those guidelines that I mentioned uh, earlier on. Um, so what exactly will need to be included in terms of details in that SAMP uh, will be laid out, spelled out in, in the guidelines that, that are currently being developed. What is, what is a requirement though, is that um, the annual carbon intensity indicate uh, performance. So what is the carbon intensity rating of a ship uh, will also be subject to verification by the administration based on which it will receive a statement of compliance. And uh, if the ship doesn't submit its data on carbon intensity, on its rating to the ship, it will not get a statement of compliance and, and that will make it uh, difficult to, to operate. So if uh, the statement of compliance or the rating demonstrates that the ship is rated D for three consecutive years or E for a year, then that uh, plan, the SAMP, needs to be accompanied with the so-called corrective action plan. And again, that corrective action plan will be verified by the administration. It will still uh, foresee the ship to be granted a statement of compliance so it can continue operating. Um, so it will not be pushed out of the market. Um, and again, this was a deliberate choice of the member states to, to have that uh, system function as such. Um, but it's crucial, of course, that uh, you mentioned it yourself, that market forces, uh, charters may choose that rating system and whether or not a ship has implemented this corrective action plan as an important element uh, in choosing it, the ship to use. Thank you. Another question that, I mean, we have so many questions anyway, uh, <laughs> and you can see them yourself. Uh, one of them is if you can differentiate please a little uh, between the EEXI and the EEDI and how this will be calculated. Yeah. Um, and by the way, if there's any mechanism again to penalize non-compliance with those. Um, I mean, this can be a very long explanation. It can, it can be rather brief. Um, the, EXI is uh, similar to the EDI. So the, the difference is that the EDI in its current uh, form and, and shape and the different calculation or the methodologies to, to um, calculate the EDI values or the reference line um, apply to new built ships. The EXI is actually making those existing requirements for new build ships mandatory for existing ships. And uh, in doing that, it uh, refers mostly to the EDI values that are, um, or that will become applicable in 2022. So it already has a more forward looking uh, approach, meaning using the EDI values for 2022 to existing ships. So that that is uh, how the two, um, function together. Now the precise um, calculation uh, of the EXI is uh, to be laid down in again in the guidelines. Uh, I have to say that the guidelines on the EXI are in a very developed uh, stage and, and earlier versions are available on already on, on IMO docs. Um, but yeah, 
the guidelines still are subject to approval as well. Um, in terms of legal implications, um, the legal implications uh, similar for other uh, statutory requirements is the certification. So the certification of the EXI uh, needs to be done uh, either at the entry into force or by, should have been done by the entry into force of the amendments, which is likely 2023, or soon after at the first survey that the ship uh, will be subject to. And then following the survey, the ship will get its certificate with which it can operate. Thank you. So uh, another question that I find quite interesting is, um, of course, all these proposed uh, uh, regulations are focusing on the owner, on the ship. But the question that we have is that, as we know, the trading pattern of a ship, to a large extent, uh, is based on the requirement by charters. Uh, so is there a way to push and motivate, force, whatever you want to call it, charters to also observe these regulations? Mm. Yeah, um, that, is a, that is, of course, an extremely relevant question. It's not a new question, meaning that uh, that's, let's say, the, the responsibility or the kind of distinction between responsibilities between the owner, the operator, the charter is, is not a new discussion. I think this applies for many requirements, both in MARPOL as well as safety related requirements. So who bears the costs, who bears the ultimate responsibility for those requirements? Um, I think in this particular case, uh, what is relevant is, of course, the again, the rating system. That is something that uh, is likely to be used by charters in terms of deciding uh, what ship it would like to, to use. And um, if the charter decides to use a ship that is uh, rated, that is energy performing uh, very, very well, um, it may have an implication, of course, on the costs. Um, and it's up to, I think that this you won't see coming back in IMO regulations. It's then, of course, up to the owner, the operator, the charger on, on to decide on how those costs are then being um, uh, included in, in, in the price or, or broken down and attributed. But it's, it's not a new discussion. It's... Um, um, or particularly for environmental requirements, it's a, it's a very relevant discussion, but IMO, the approach of the legal instrument always speaks about the ship, uh, at least in MARPO Annex 6. Well, at the same time, you also have all these initiatives coming also, the charters now are coming with their own initiatives, so maybe they can also try to be in line with what you're proposing, and, and I think they do. Um, yeah. One last question, I mean, we, we are grateful to have you here for an hour and a quarter. <laughs> I don't want to exhaust you or the audience, even though I can see that attendance remains very robust. Uh -huh. um, one question is talking about the fund, the five billion fund. Mm, yeah. Uh, most of our participants, of course, are market experts, but I'd like to ask you for those who are not market experts, if you can explain why do we need such a fund, number one. Number two, uh, where are we uh, regarding the establishment of such a fund? Uh, and uh, what would the role of the IMO be? I understand this is not 
close to being implemented, but tell us why it's important, how the IMO will be involved. And so okay. Um, just to give you a bit of background, um, the, the initial strategy uh, of IMO, uh, so the strategy adopted back in 2018, lists uh, various measures that all of them are aimed, of course, at reducing uh, GHG emissions. Um, and one of those measures um, was the proposal or the, a potential creation of the so-called uh, research and development board and uh, an associated um, kind of financial uh, mechanism around it. Um, in the strategy itself that was adopted, there's no further explanation about that, but the industry um, or various industry organizations have actually taken up the uh, initiative and elaborated in a very detailed way and submitted that proposal to IMO. And, um, the proposal is such as is a proposal. It's a proposal for a measure. And in that way, it has now during the, the session of the committee two weeks ago been considered. Um, the, the proposal has various elements, um, a legal element. So it is uh, foreseeing also amendments to, to MARPO or a potential other instrument in order to make the system mandatory. Uh, there's a governance structure related, so who oversees uh, what is being done with the money that's collecting, how it's being reattributed, uh, who will benefit of the funds, will that be existing university R&D centers, will that money have to be allocated or will a specific percentage of that money will have to be allocated to developing countries. Um, so there have been the, the proposal is very elaborate and it's, an, it's quite an innovative proposal. Um, we, as you, as you rightly mentioned, the committee or the member states couldn't uh, agree yet on a way forward with that proposal, highlighting the different elements that I, I just uh, summed up, governance, legal, uh, financial attribution. Um, so, We'll, we'll see what will happen at the next session of the committee. Like any other measure, it's up to the member states to agree on it, on the proposal. Um, it's obvious, of course, that the money that will be collected uh, should be largely allocated to promote uh, research, uh, pilot projects uh, focused on um, decarbonization of shipping. So, and what that can be or where those projects will be implemented that is uh, undecided for the time being, and, and we will see in, in what direction uh, future discussions will go at the next session of the committee. Thank you. I think, is it safe to say, Roel, that uh, with all these measures and all the, the tendency towards more energy efficient ships, mm -hmm. uh, that that can act uh, as uh, a mechanism to uh, encourage um, the retirement of older ships which means uh, ultimately, you know, uh, it will affect ship supply, it will affect the market. I mean, you yeah. know, on one hand, you achieve uh, uh, mm. better energy efficiency and, and maybe you have, uh, you know, a, a better overall market given the difference in uh, ship supply. Yeah. And of course, owners right now, as we've heard, they're not exactly sure, not only on the regulatory side, but also what type of engine to use, what type of fuel to uh, um, to uh, use for the ships, which means slower 
uh, new building orders. So maybe the mm -hmm. whole thing will gel into a better market. Yeah. Um, well, let, let me put it this way. I think that um, the, the amendments, the amendments that have been agreed now, um, deliberately do not uh, push out certain ships of the market immediately, not at least not on the basis of the legal text. Whether this will happen uh, eventually because of market forces is possible. I think what the measure was uh, or is intended to do is to make sure that in the absence of real alternatives, so real alternative fuels that are affordable and that are available all around the world, the measure is really uh, aiming to increase the efficiency of the existing fleet. And um, in that way, and I think it's obvious that the existing fleet will still be for a large part operating, uh, ensuring trade worldwide up to 2030 and after that. And, and so the crucial, the crucial, I think, part of, of the amendments is that that fleet that will continue to operate will operate in, in, mo in the most efficient way possible. And then depending on where the ship will operate, depending on its uh, competitors in a certain uh, area, it, it may mean that ships will be phased out, but it's not uh, as such the, the objective of the amendments, but may eventually be uh, something that may occur uh, because of a combination of market forces and maybe the availability of alternative fuels um, in, in a hopefully short period. Well, look, uh, we have uh, taken great benefit from your wisdom and <laughs> insight and uh, all the information you shared with us. It is an hour and 20 minutes that we are together. I would like to thank you very much for uh, really a, a great presentation. Uh, I don't know if there's any closing statement you'd like to make before we wrap up. No, I, I, I wish to thank you. Um... For, for the opportunity and of course for the great interest uh, by the uh, participation and uh, as I said I think uh, we have a lot of work to do in order to finalize the measure uh, by MEP 76 and we invite of course uh, everyone uh, to, to join that effort in order to make sure that we uh, achieve the adoption of the amendments uh, by MEPC 76 in June next year. Thanks for that. Thank you again very much. Have uh, everybody a great uh, rest of the day, and I hope to have you with us uh, soon again. And again, tremendous uh, thanks for uh, uh, for a great uh, discussion. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks to everyone. Thank you. Bye bye.